passage. We're still in the book of Romans. Of course, I, it seems like we're going to be there forever, you know, um, as much as I get up here. But um, just step by step, line by line, precept by precept, we're going to work our way through it. But right now we're in Romans chapter 1. And our key text this morning is coming from verse 15 through 18. If you have your Bibles with you, if you if you don't, we have should have it behind me. Romans chapter one, verses 15 through 18. We all there? Say Amen. It reads, so, as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. To the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. So for title's sake, today's message is called, Don't Be Ashamed of the Gospel. Paul says that he's not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. I don't want us to overlook this very important, this very deep, very convicting statement that Paul makes here. Now, this is a verse in Scripture that most of us, if not all, are familiar with in some shape or form. We've passed through this station several times or many times before, right? How many have been through this passage before I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for is the power of God unto salvation but I this afternoon I don't want us to just be content on just passing through how many of us have taken a road trip before so I've taken many road trips during my life my dad and my mom they, they're here right now and I'm so grateful to see their faces here in the audience. Um, ever since I was a little boy, you know, um, my dad, um, he would drive me across country. You know, so I've been from the west to the east coast, from the west to down south, mid-south. You know, I, I've been cross country many times before. But if you was to ask me, what's it like? in Utah, what's it, what's it like in Dallas or Nebraska or even Kansas City? I went out there when I was young. You know, we took many trips out there. Um, I've been to the East Coast, New York, you know, so I've passed through, you know, all of those states that you have to get, to get there, you know. Um, I went around to Washington, you know, so I've pretty much been all over the United States. But if you ask me anything about these places, um, I probably wouldn't be able to give you any great detail about those places. Why? Because 
Those are places I just passed through. Right? So, I don't want us this afternoon to just be content with just passing through this portion of scripture right here. Um, we have a we have a destination, of course, that we want to get through or get to. And we're on a road trip. You know, our, our road map is the Bible, of course. And our our destination is eternal life with Christ. But there are some stops that we're going to have to take. And this morning, um, I want us to stop for a minute at Romans 1 and 16. I want us to take that exit and pull off and really spend some time and, and, and dig in and, and, and see, you know, what that portion of Scripture has to offer us this morning. So as we spend time here, we're going to look at what's it like to be ashamed. I want you to ask yourself this morning, everybody ask yourselves two questions. First question is, why does Paul say this? Why does he say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel? There's got to be some reason other than what we typically are, are used to just thinking upon just reading it and just passing by and just letting it go, right? Um, let's look back a little bit and give ourselves a little bit of context as to why Paul says this. If we look back to Romans chapter 1, verse 4, it reads, And declare to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness. Here we, we first get a look at or an understanding of the subject matter here. We're talking about the Jesus Christ. You know how somebody would refer to the, the LeBron, that, that, this is the LeBron James. I, I got to go see, I got to go to Walmart and get his autograph, right? We, no, we're not talking about him, no. We're talking about the Jesus Christ. The Son of God with power. Take a, take a little minute and swallow that. Jesus Christ, the Son of God with power. This is who we're talking about. I don't want you to overlook that with power because that's telling us of his uniqueness, his authority, his unlimited ability. And who's giving validation to this claim? The spirit of holiness. So there's no question there of who he is and why we ought to look at him in a different respects as we looked at to as opposed to who we look at anybody else. And then he goes on to read by the resurrection from the dead. So this resurrection means that Jesus, the son of God with power, gave his life, he died, and was laid in the grave for you and I. 
Okay. We just we just giving ourselves a little context and we're building this up. But we got Jesus Christ, the Son of God, with power, and he did this incredible deed for us all by dying and giving his life for you and I. Romans 1 5, it says, By whom we have received grace and apostleship for the obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. Two things we are told here that we have received and we have received grace. Remember I talked about several messages ago when, when we talked about grace to you. You know that grace not just being a thing, but that grace actually being Christ himself. Right? Grace to you, Christ to you. So we've been given grace. We've been given Christ. That word debt, grace is defined that which affords joy. We've been given joy. We've been given pleasure, delight, sweetness, charm, loveliness, goodwill, loving kindness, favor of the merciful kindness by which God exerting his holy influence upon souls turns them to Christ keeps strengthens increases them in the Christian faith knowledge we've been given affection and he kindles them to the exercise of the Christian virtues this is all the stuff that we've been given through his grace that defines the grace that we've been given by him and we've also been given apostleship for obedience that word obedience meaning compliance or submission to the faith among all nations. Romans 1, 6, among whom are ye also the called of Jesus? Okay? So Paul is saying here, you know, I'm coming to you and I'm writing this letter to you and I desire to come to you and share with you I've been called and, and, and Christ has done all this for me, but he's done it for you too. He called me and he called you too. Romans 1, 11 through 12 says, For I long to see you that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift. To the end ye may be established. That is, that I may be comforted together with you by the mutual faith both of you and me. We now know who Christ is. We know what Christ has done and given not only to Paul, as I just said a minute ago, but to us as well. Paul lets us know that we're in the faith together. We're in this faith together. We got to love that last forever, right? We in this faith together. Romans 1, 13 through 14, it reads, Now, I would not have you ignorant, brethren, that oftentimes I purposed to come unto you, but was led hitherto, that I may have some fruit among you also, even as among other Gentiles. I'm debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and 
and to the unwise. So here he finally puts a name to the reason for his not being ashamed of this great gospel. And that name is debt. He says, I'm in debt. Both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, to the wise and to the one wise. I'm in debt. I'm in debt to everybody. I'm swimming. I'm swimming in debt. I can't even breathe in this debt that I owe. Right? I can never pay I can never pay back what I owe. Okay? So Paul is saying that Christ has done all that Christ that has done for me. The undeserved grace that he's given me. What says in Isaiah 53, 4 through 5, it says, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of his peace was upon him, and by his stripes we were healed. I could never pay back that debt that I owe him for all that he's done for me. And so this debt that Paul has come to accept and own is now become a vehicle that drives his pursuit of anyone that will listen. And guess what? You owe too. Just like Paul owes you owe so just like he has this relentless pursuit of anyone that will listen we also ought to have a relentless pursuit of anyone that will lend to hear to hear our praise our worship our gratitude our shout for all that Christ has done for us We ought to share with them that very same gospel, the very same power, the very same grace that was bestowed upon him, you and I. That they too, at the end of the day, will come where? That they will too enter and partake in eternal life with Christ Jesus. That's the ultimate goal right there. So Paul is fired up and he's saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel and you ought not be ashamed either. After all, after all he's done for you, what's he done for you? What's he done for you? After all he's done for me, ain't no reason in the world why I ought to be ashamed of this great gospel that is responsible for saving my soul when I deserve death. Eternal death, not just death here on earth, but eternal damnation. That's that's what we all deserve. Two, 
Why does scripture say this? Remember, I, I say it almost every time I get up here, the word of God is alive. It's a living word. Written by men, inspired by God. 2 Timothy 3.16 proves that to us. It says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And so why does God say this? Why does he say, I am not ashamed of the gospel? We know why Paul says it. Why, why is scripture saying it? Is he just boasting in Paul? Acts 10.34 tells us, Then Peter opened his mouth and said, Of a truth, I perceive that God is no respecter of persons. So, no, he's not boasting in Paul. Well, then, if this is the case, then there has to be more to learn and be understood concerning this statement about being ashamed of the gospel. So let's dig a little bit deeper. Let's find out what we can learn about this word of shame. What does it mean? How does it feel? How does it look? Well, defined by Strong's definition, the word of shame means um, to feel shame for something. Be ashamed. So we see here that shame is Or being ashamed has to do with it says, excuse me, it says, um, to feel shame for something or be ashamed. Okay, so shame, we learn here, is a feeling. It says to be ashamed, to feel ashamed. Okay, a feeling, an emotion. Something that exists on the inside that sometimes can emerge and become visible to others. But also, at other times, can be very well hidden or suppressed and known only to an individual or God himself. Another definition, too. A state of being. In philosophy, being means the material or immaterial existence of a thing. Anything that exists is being. So when we talk about being ashamed, we're talking about something that exists and is noticeable to others. Being ashamed has a, a posture to it. Just like being proud has a notable posture. Right? When you're proud, you, you, you stick your chest out, right? When you're ashamed, you, you hold your head down. I remember when my dad used to take me, I went to Malcolm X Elementary out in Berkeley, and he had this Fred Sanford truck. My mother had a Mercedes Benz, right? <laughs> I wanted to be taken to school in that Mercedes Benz, but when I got took it to school in that, San, that Fred Sanford truck, right, you know, I kind of snuck, snuck out the door a little bit. It was like, anybody looking? 
I ran on the schoolyard. It was like nobody saw me. You know what I mean? It's a posture to be in shame. Right? But it's also, in reverse, a, a posture of being proud that we ought to learn how to and own, you know, as far as displaying that posture, you know, to the public. I believe this afternoon that God wants us to take a good look at our posture and as it relates to us being ashamed of the gospel versus our proud and motivated visible existence that's dug in and firmly rooted into the gospel. Right? When, when we're at work, you know, um, and, you know, people are over here and they're talking nonsense. Right? You know, they're playing the dozens with each other. You know, or they may be trying to lure you in to talk bad about somebody because they don't like that person, whatever the case may be. Right? Our posture ought to be so pronounced, you know, that one, that they don't even, you know, get the inkling of an idea that they can come drag you into their mess. Right? And two, it ought to be strong enough to have a level of influence. To whereas they were thinking this way one second, but when they saw you, guess what? That light shone on their darkness and caused a reversal of attitude. Let's take a look at three different scriptures right now. And I didn't do it in any particular order because we are, we're going to discuss all of it. But um, let's take a look at three different scriptures that will give us some insight into, <clears throat> one, the causes of shame, two, or should I say some causes of shame, because I'm not going to go into all the causes of shame, but two, consequences of shame, and three, encouragement, and that there is no need for you to be ashamed. We'll start with causes. Genesis 2, 16. It says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree, of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat. Okay, underline that. Thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Underline die. Genesis 2.25 reads, And... They were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. Genesis 3, 3 through 6. And you guys all know the story. I'm, I'm sure you, most of you are familiar with the story 
of Adam and Eve and the garden and the serpent and so forth. But I'm just, you know, jumping from piece to piece to try to sew this thing together and make it make sense. But Genesis 3, 3 through 6 reads, But of the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. Now, I underline that whole part. So people don't overlook this very important part. You see, it's easy to, to do because in 2.16 we read that it just says, do not eat. You guys see that? In 16, it says, um, do not eat of the the tree of knowledge of good and evil. But then what's the difference here? It says, ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. This is telling us emphatically, don't have anything to do with sin. Don't eat it. Don't touch it. Don't read it. Don't smell it. Don't look at it. Don't you even think about it. Right? Because you can't handle it. God knew we, we, we couldn't handle it. You know, we, we, we got close to it. You can't handle it. If you've been on drugs before, right, you ought not even go about the people who are using drugs. You ought not go around the people who even mention drugs. Right? Are you going to have a problem? If you had a problem with pornography before in your life, right? You ought not even walk into 7-Eleven half the times, right? Because it's right there on the magazines as soon as you walk in the door, right? And you're going to slip and fall right back into your problem again. So you're going to need to choose a different store to go to. But stay away from it, though. And I already gave you the instructions, and, and, and you know I'm God. You know I know all. There's a reason as to why I gave you these instructions, and it's for your safety. Stay away. We can't afford it. We're too weak. And the moment you get too close, the strength of sin's enticement will draw you in and you will surely die. As we continue reading 4, it says, And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. All right? Underline that. Serpent said, you, You're not going to die. That's a lie. That's what he says. He told her. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, there your eyes shall be open. And ye shall be as gods. Underline that. Knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and the tree to be desired to make one wise. She took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her and he did eat. Genesis 7, 3, 7 through 10 continues, it reads, 
and the eyes of them were both open and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons and they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden and the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him where art thou and he said I heard thy voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was what I was naked and I hid myself so here in this story we we learn some things about what can cause shame. First thing I notice is disobedience. Right? What's the opposite of disobedience? Obedience. So disobedience can cause shame. You know, he, he, he told them, he gave them direct instruction not to eat from the tree. They disobeyed, right? Before they disobeyed, before, and, and they were running around naked, they didn't even notice that they were naked. You know, they had no issue, no problem. They didn't, they, didn't, they didn't even think about the fact that they were naked. That wasn't even shameful to them, right? But after they disobeyed, guess what happened? Their eyes were open. And then fear came about, right? So they ran and they hid, hid because they felt the shame of fear. So we kind of learned that shame and, and fear, they almost are synonymous with each other, right? You hide yourself or you, 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 you hold your head in shame because you fear what somebody else is going to think about you or how else somebody is going to see you, right? We also learn that listening to others over God can cause shame. And they listen to the serpent over what God told them expressly, right? My son... I asked him a question about, um, I forget what I asked him about, but he hit right on this whole, the shame part and gave me a, a whole little dissertation about, you know, how um, listening to others and wanting to be like the in crowd, be like everybody else, you know, can cause you to hold your head or feel shameful. So listening to others over God, desiring to fit in, giving in to covetousness. Covetousness is the greedy desire to want more. Profit acquired by violence. This covetousness is a potential monster laying dormant inside of you that if fed the sinful advice and influence of those who are not even in the faith, right? It will quickly and easily grow out of control and devour you. 
this desire to be more than you were created to be. Right? Satan says, your eyes are going to be open and you will be as gods. Imagine, you know, what went through her mind or flew through her mind when she said, oh, we're going to be like gods, right? What, what am I playing with over here? You know what I mean? I'm just running around naked with Adam, you know what I mean? I could be so much more, <laughs> right? But God didn't create you to be so much more. He created you to be just what he wants you to be, just enough. All that you need to be is, is right in the package that he gave you. Right? Desire to be who, who, who wants to be more than they could be this morning? That's a, that's, a, that's a tough question. That's a good question to ask yourself. Right? Because a lot of us can get caught up in that. A lot of us do get caught up in that. A lot of us caught up in that right now. Want to be more than we were intended to be or even need to be. Right? This whole country is just driven by, you know, Wanting to be more, wanting more, wanting more, wanting to be more, right? And there's really no sense to it at all because none of it is long-lasting. None of it is eternal, right? And to know more than you can handle. Right? There's a reason why God protected us from that tree of knowledge of good and evil. Because we couldn't handle the, the knowledge that we were that, that, that we got. You take a whole bunch of knowledge, it's like the Pharisees and the Sadducees and stuff like that, and they, 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 they ran up and, and tried to bump heads with Jesus on several occasions, and guess what? They always got put to shame. They didn't know as much as they thought they did. And what they thought they knew, the, the knowledge that they had gained, was actually putting them in jeopardy to lose their eternal life with Christ. Because now you're following Satan. Consequences. I want to lead into this consequence portion of being ashamed of the gospel by setting it up with a, a clarification that this gospel message of Jesus Christ is so much more than the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We get caught up in the awesomeness of the power that Christ possesses and that he died and then he raised himself from the grave, we lose sight as to why he did this awesome, loving, kind deed to begin with. It was because of our sin, which brought about our death, which means that we were once alive, but under the condition of obedience to God. In the New Testament, we hear it called obedience to the faith. So you see, this gospel message is not 
shallow at all. In fact, it's very deep. And this is why we see this title so often throughout Scripture, the great gospel, the gospel, the gospel, this great gospel of Christ. It's because that there are many moving parts that make up this great gospel. And this is where I want to talk to you about marketing the gospel versus living the gospel message through obedience to the faith. What do I mean when I say marketing the gospel? Well, this is when we, we don't trust the, effected, the effectiveness of the simple gospel. We don't like the way it looks. We don't like the way it feels. And we transfer our ideas and our fears, our shame, onto others. They feel the same way that I do. They respond the same way that I do. So what do you do when you're not happy or proud with how you look? You run and you put some makeup on, right? You dress to impress, right? To try and make yourself palatable to who you're going to present yourself to eventually. But what are you really doing? You ain't doing nothing but hiding the truth. Right? You're covering up your shame. And so we can't continue in this sinful way of marketing the gospel for it's the truth. The gospel is the truth. It's the power of God. Not man, not the power of man, not the power of you, not the power of me, but the power of God unto salvation. So he don't really need no help in the whole marketing area. He, he don't have no ad in the paper that says, I'm looking for marketing people to come help market my gospel so that I can save more souls. Right? There's no ad in the paper that says that. Many will possibly go to hell, right? Many possibly will go to hell because of this attribute of shame. Wanting to market the gospel. Why do I say that? I'm not just talking about those who are taught in the untruth, or taught the untruth, but I'm talking about those who it says in Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth and unrighteousness. So this, this marketing of the gospel, um, we, we have to put the gospel in, in, in proper perspective. Pastor preached last two times, last two weeks, he was coming out of chapter um, four of John. And he was talking about the woman at the well and how she ran and she said, come see a man. You guys see that right there? Come see a man. Not come to my church party, y'all, or 
take a look in or listen to this manipulated gospel that I really wish that you would become a part of. She said, come see a man that told me the down and dirty truth about myself. You know, you know what that says to me? The truth was enough. It was enough for her. And the truth was that that truth, that same truth that was enough for her was, it was the same truth that was enough to, to set her ablaze, to set her on fire, to set her running. Come see a man that told me everything, right? Not if you become a Christian, you're going to make all this money, you're going to get this big house. If you, if you live right, this is going to happen for you and that's going to happen for you, right? Not if you become a Christian or you believe in Jesus, you're going to have mansions in heaven and this and that and all that kind of stuff. All that stuff is good, you know what I mean? But that, that shouldn't be a, a way that we are trying to persuade people to come to Jesus, right? He gave us an easy, a easy way to do it and a, a, a powerful and the, the most powerful way to do it and an effective way to do it, and that's to go, go run and tell everybody about a man that told you everything <laughs> about yourself, right? He didn't lift me up, you know what I mean? He, he, he didn't put me on the pedestal. You know, he didn't tell me all these lies about who I was and, who, and, and this and that and blah, blah, blah. He, he, he told me all the down and dirty about myself, about everything I, I ever did. You know, and that, that, that's, you guys may think that's crazy, but that, 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 was, that was like the most amazing thing to me, how he just broke me down like that, right? That's what she did, you know, and that's how she felt. And many came to Christ because of that method. Mark 21, 12, it reads, And Jesus went into the temple of God and cast out all them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves. Does it need to come to this, you guys? Does it need to come to your marketing party and being overthrown by, by Jesus, your, your seats and your tables, you know, him coming into your life and just overturning them and, and, you know, just to, not just to, but does it have to come to the, the, the point to where he embarrasses you and to make the point that he's already made and he said his temple, what? Which is the body of Christ, right? His temple. Now is the body of Christ. That's you and I. What is his temple going to be? Or should his temple be? A house of prayer. It shall be holy. It shall be truthful and unashamed. And we read in Mark 8. 34 through 38, it says, And when he had called the people unto him with his disciples also, he said unto them, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. 
For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospels, the same shall live, the same shall save it. For what shall a man profit if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in glory of his Father with the holy angels. So look here. Picture you had a big street party. All kind of influences happen around you. People dancing and stripping and doing drugs and stuff like that. It, it's going down. You, 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 where, where, where's that at in Louisiana where that happens at? Um, Mardi Gras. Yeah, so it's Mardi Gras out there in the streets, right? And uh, a big yellow bus, yeah, a big yellow bus pulls up. You know, that's pretty embarrassing, right? You know, we always being pretty embarrassed of a yellow bus. But it pulls up, and we're going to call that bus the great gospel bus. And Paul is the driver of this great gospel bus. And on this bus, when and if you get in, right, you receive forgiveness of sins. You receive forgiveness of sins when you hop in on this bus. So all the dirt you did when you was young or even all the dirt you did, you're doing right now, if you decide to hop on that bus, right, all that sin is going to be forgiven. All right, that's something that you don't even have to worry about no more. That's something you don't have to hold your head in shame about anymore. That's something that you don't have to get out of character about no more because you're allowing that shame to drive you and to motivate you to do whatever it is, you know, that you're stuck in. Right? So when you hop in this bus, you get relieved of all your sin. You're forgiven of all your sin. You receive also the righteousness of God. This includes and is not limited to the observing divine laws. Okay? Observing divine laws, being innocent, faultless, guiltless, upright, virtuous, keeping the commands of God. Okay, so right here, people might, you know, they might think about it. They, they might not want to hop in, right? I don't know if I want to hop in on that bus. I got to follow the commands of God. That's too hard, right? I don't know if I want to hop in because I'm not faultless. I'm not, uh, I'm not guiltless, or I can't be faultless, or I can't be guiltless. I can't be perfect. Well, we were commanded to. Jesus wouldn't have commanded you to and told you to be such if, if you couldn't do it. All right, so, so you can. 
But you got to hop in, though. Right? Because when you hop in, again, you, you are forgiven of all those sins. So you got a whole new slate. And now you got the, uh, the righteousness of, of God that is fueled by the power of God unto salvation. Okay? So this is why you can do it. This is why you can be perfect. This is why you can be guiltless. This is why you can walk the straight and narrow path of righteousness. He wouldn't have commanded you to do something that he know you couldn't do. Well, let me take that back. He did command you to do something that he know you couldn't do, but he's the power behind it. Okay? So this is what we got to understand. It's not us. Right, and this is the this is this is the, the awesomeness and of of His grace and His passion for us, and going and dying on the cross to forgive, so that we can have our sins forgiven. Right, is because that was that that was our only way. That's our only way to salvation. That's our only way back to Christ. All the way since we were separated. From Adam and Eve. So. We got to receive the righteousness of God. And on this big yellow bus. The power of God. Unto salvation. So there's no need. For us. To be ashamed. What are you ashamed of? Don't be ashamed. There's nothing. For you. Right. While we still, you know, you know, everybody's partying outside and stuff like that, and then you got that draw pulling you, right? They really, it's, it's really nothing for you there. Get on the bus. And encouragement. With all the understanding that we now have concerning the subject of being ashamed, I want to leave you with this encouragement from Second Timothy, chapter one, verse seven through ten. And it says, for God have not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. But be that partaker. This is for you. Be thy partaker of the afflictions of the gospel. It's not going to be easy. But it's still for you. I'll say it again. It's not going to be easy. But be that partaker though. Because you have everything to gain. And nothing to lose. Be that partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling. Not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world even began. But is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light through 
this gospel through the gospel. Don't be ashamed of the gospel.